And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. We're back to the old season version of our introduction. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> well, you know, it had. Uh, well, I have been influenced by some of the slicker podcasts out there, Gary. I mean, I, I had, I've been listening to uh, This American Life. I don't know if you've heard, heard it. I heard. I've never. I've heard it once or twice. And it just goes to show how you go about. Well, it, it shows to me what happens when you can have a whole week to produce audio, an hour of audio, and you have lots and lots of resources. And it sort of does. It makes me want to sort of go. Wow, we could do this. We could be more organized, and we could have. We could have a jingle, Gary. We could. Uh... Well, yes, but we could also. Uh, this, this American Life is on NPR. It's on National Public Radio mm-hmm. in the United States, I believe. Yes. And. It, it's very entertaining, and I don't ever want to sound like national public radio. Oh, no. No, I'm not suggesting. Every, everybody speaks a few inches from the microphone like this, and I don't, I don't want to do that. It's just, it's... <laughs> so how's life in the wilds of Chicago? Um, the weather here is rotten. It, 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 this happens to me every March. I go, um, and it's, in, it's in the end of winter, the beginning of spring. I go to the um, International Conference on the Fantastic, where we were uh, at last week's podcast, as you'll remember. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I get down there to this wonderful 80-degree weather, it turns 65 <laughs> degrees back in Chicago. They have a wonderful, warm, sunny week. I come back, and the weather is crap again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I've been catching up with that. I had to go on a business trip to Oregon the day after I got back from ICFA. The yep. day after I got back from uh, Oregon, well, this was not an obligation. This was a delight. China Mieville had been in town for a Chicago Comic-Con called oh. C2E2, oh, cool. uh, which stands for something. And which is very interesting because he had the same impression of this convention that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was invited not because he's doing a graphic novel, but because there are a very select number of what they call print writers uh, <laughs> that they thought would be of interest to their audience. Wow. So he showed up and, 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 and did his gig there, and then we chatted for a bit, and... Uh, and, and, and since then, as you well know, I've been trying to write the column I should have written over a week ago. So what are you, what, what are you covering this month? Because, I mean, like, well, I should is, know, right? I should know. I'm, I'm covering Embassy Town. Yep. Um, I, I, I was doing this just before the podcast. It's an awkward thing to – talking to China, I said to him at the beginning of dinner. We had this long dinner that we can't talk about it because I was writing a review of it. Yeah. Uh, which he's, he understands that perfectly. It was, interestingly enough – only the third time I've been out in public with a writer where the people at the next table said, excuse me, are you China? China What's well, the first time they've said, are you China? Me able? <laughs> yeah. And of course they, and then later I found out they, 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 they tweeted squeeze. There's a, there's a particular kind of tweet, which is a squee. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who, anybody who has seen Neil Gaiman, for example, will tweet a squee. Well, so China has his squee tweets too. Are they um, squeets? Squeets. That's what exactly what they are. Yep. Um, okay. But the the uh, the other two people that I've, I've been recognized with, and, and I've been out with some fairly well-known writers. The only two people who got recognized on the street, Neil Gaiman, obviously. That's no. Yeah. That's no. The third one was Charles Brown. <laughs> He's distinctive. He's very distinctive looking. He was visiting me in Chicago. We were walking down Michigan Avenue, and somebody came up and said, "Excuse me, are you are you Charles Brown?" And Charles. Well, first of all, he spent 30 seconds gloating at me before he even answered. <laughs> and, and, yes, I am. Who are you? Uh, here I am, ego the size of a planet. He really... <laughs> Absolutely. I missed that. Yeah. 
Well, I've I've got that. I've got uh, I've got Eclipse Four, which I can't talk to you about for the same reason, and yeah. um, and the um, the new Michael Swanwick novel, the Darger and Plus uh, uh, novel. Yeah, which, which is fun. Is, which is fun, and but it, it's fun, but it's I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to go on too much because I haven't actually written that review yet. Yeah, it's it turns out to be much darker than you expect. Uh, mm. Mm. And it occurred to me that a lot of these sort of roving con man, rogue hero things dating back to Fawford and the Grey Mouser from Prince Liber. I was thinking something, the Fawford and the Grey Mouser stories get pretty dark at times. They too. do indeed. They're not, I mean, for all that they're supposed to be uh, swashbuckling fun, they're mm. actually much more your dark, mm. weird sword and sorcery stuff than, uh, yeah, it's not Errol mm. Flynn with sidekick. No. No, it's, uh, it's, 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 there's a bit of Lovecraftian horror in the whole thing. Yeah. The other story, the, the other story which I'm going to recommend to people, I can plug my friends at least, is uh, I, I mean I've read the whole part of it at uh, the international conference. Keep uh, Peter, Peter Straub has a new novella, really. I think it's almost novella length. Uh, actually, you should be reading this, uh, which will be in the next issue of Conjunction. It's called The Ballad of Ballard and Sandrine, which is it's got some Lovecraftian overtones in it, but it's an extremely weird and disturbing story. And it's it's one Sorry of those stories that. where even 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 I, I know him well, but I don't know where it came from. He doesn't yeah. know where it came from, but it's it's very interesting. Okay. Elements of Heart of Darkness and elements of Lovecraft in it. Mm-hmm. That was very slick of us, Gary. You know what just happened? What? My family locked themselves out of the house and I had to go let him back in. Oh, absolutely <laughs> wonderful. That's that's us. We're bringing you the very best in modern audio recording. Yeah, we don't want to make people think that we're doing this in a studio or somewhere. Um, well, I think they'd know that if they've listened more than once, Gary. <laughs> but no, anyway. Well, I've... Okay, uh, the other thing that happened at uh, ICFA, and it happened after last week's podcast because it was the very last session on the last day before the banquet, um, was a discussion that, uh, that, Jim, that, that James Patrick Kelly uh, had oh, organized. Yeah. and he, he and I had talked about this before. And this is a dialogue which has been going on in various quarters, um, partly... Um, between uh, the two of them, between them and me, when I write reviews, other people write reviews of their uh, anthologies for Tachyon, the Secret History of Science Fiction, yeah. the, uh, the Cyberpunk Anthology, the Feeling Very Strange Slipstream Anthology, all of which are interesting in that they are argumentative anthologies. Yes. Um, and um, so they, they basically wanted to argue. I mean, unlike, um, unlike some editors who I will not name, who gets very defensive about the arguments of their anthologies. Yeah. They want the argument. They want feedback. They want people to, to respond to them. Yeah. Uh, and so the panel turned out not to be really about their anthologies at all. It turned out to be... Let me, let me read you the title, because this is the other thing I love about going to conferences. Now, you have to understand that ICFA is um, essentially an academic conference with lots mm-hmm. of writers and editors. It's not a fan conference. Um, and for the whole... Um, weekend i knew that i was on this panel i kind of knew what it was about and you know the little short yeah. they have truncated titles the title of it was genre anxiety and i thought that's cool i like that phrase i mm-hmm. think that's i think that's diagnosable i think people should you know be able to take medication for it <laughs> uh, yeah i get on the panel and jim hands me the pro- the official program which i hadn't looked at all weekend title is The Anxiety of the Taxonomist as He Contemplates the Creation of Genre. <laughs> which, which is partly Jim making fun of the academic 
tendency to write pretentious titles. Yeah. Uh, I think it's partly an allusion to that old Wem Winders movie, The Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick. Um, but that's exactly what he wanted to talk about. He wanted to talk about the, the question he opened with, which I thought was at first a shallow question, but it turned out to be a very clever one. Uh, the panelists, let me see, who are the panelists besides myself, Jim, and of course, uh, John Kessel, mm-hmm. and then uh, Rob Latham, who of course had just finished uh, co-editing the uh, Wesleyan Anthology of, of Science Fiction, which we've talked about, and then now Hopkins. And they were all there for specific reasons, and I think Nalo and Ted, because they were writing in these oddly defined areas. Mm. And um, also, I mean, Nalo has edited a couple of anthologies, which and were... And she's edited a couple of anthologies. Definitive, well. in a way. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, of course, we started getting into questions of interstitial and intergenre and cross-genre and that sort of thing. Um, the question that Jem opened with, uh, which turned out to be a leading question, started out by asking uh, John and Nalo if they had... Uh, ever deliberately sat down and said, I'm going to write a story in this genre. And it seems like an obvious question. The answer becomes complicated because, I mean, John obviously said at the beginning of his career, that's all he thought about. Mm-hmm. And then he and Nalo both said, well, you start, you know, if you start thinking about the market, where am I going to sell this? Of course you think about genre. Yeah. But does it guide the story is the question. Yeah. And so that that kind of question was laid out there. Then he asked Rob Latham and myself as uh, critics, if we had ever assigned a story to a genre, if we'd ever read a story and said, okay, I'm going to call this that. Sure. And we both responded, you know, Rob had less of a problem because Rob is, uh, his, his anthology is a representative anthology rather than an argumentative anthology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, our, our response was, well, in some senses, if you're trying to identify a story such as the two that came to mind, the two, two that I mentioned actually happen to be uh, uh, both from um, anthologies that you've done. One was, of course, Elizabeth Hand's The um, Maiden Flight of Macaulay's mm-hmm. Bellerophon, and the other one was Karen Joy Fowler's <laughs> The... Which just comes up... That, that story is going to be one of the most discussable stories ever. <laughs> because the question... The point I was making in reviewing these things yeah. is that, well, no, you don't want to necessarily claim... You don't want to claim that it is a science fiction or a fantasy story... But at the same time, you sort of want to claim it for science fiction and fantasy. In the sense yeah. that these are things that readers of these genres will appreciate. Sure, sure. And then, okay, so then what's underlying the whole question that that uh, Jim Kelly, who's a very smart guy, uh, must have had in mind all along. Yeah, well, you guys can say that. But when we're putting together an anthology, we have to, we, we can't make theoretical distinctions like critics can. Mm. We don't make market distinctions like writers can. The, the, the definition of where something belongs comes down to an editor's decision, is it in or out? Does it belong here or not? Yes. And I wanted to ask you as an anthologist if <laughs> that's something you experience. You can't, Absolutely. You, you, can't, you, you, you can't theoretically say this might be fantasy. You have to say, is this going to go in a book which is mostly fantasy and science fiction? It's happened often, and it happens... It's happened in two different areas. The first place it happened was doing the new space opera books with Gardner. Mm-hmm. You know, we sat there every now and again going, I mean, we suddenly realized, okay, we're doing this thing called the new space opera, and really it had spun up out of a bit of fluff of an idea, I guess, that, you know, there was something going on in space opera, it would be fun to do the book, and there were all these interesting writers, so how hard could it be, right? 
But then they start delivering the stories, and you start have to start having to litmus test them. Are they actually new? Well, are they space opera? Are they new space opera? How do you define the difference between these two? Because when you write the introduction to the book, you will have defined these stories as new space opera, and people will then um, judge the book and judge the job you've done editing based on whether they feel that 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 that's an accurate fit. It mm-hmm. happened again most recently doing Engineering Infinity, which is supposed to be a uh, Tom Godwin cold equations like hard SF book. Right. And so you know you start off with a model in your mind of what an what a hard SF story is, and as each story comes in, you find yourself testing it against that, going, is this hard SF? Isn't it hard SF? Can I call it hard SF? Why would I call it hard SF? Hard SF? Why wouldn't I? Do I? You know that sort of thing. So those are the clearest cases. But the other point where it does happen is with the year's best because, I mean, I try and balance the book. I try and make it as close roughly as I can to 50-50 science fiction or fantasy. And I, I allow myself a sort of like, if you like, a middle 20% of blurry. But even then, you're sitting there going, yeah, well, the, the great example is one you've talked about, um, The Maiden Flight of uh, Macaulay's Bellerophon, science fiction, fantasy, mainstream or other. What what's the litmus test I'm going to use to right. decide? Because after the fact, someone's going to come back to me and say, you've just devoted 20-odd thousand words of the year's best that I'm paying 20 bucks for to this book uh, or to this story. Um, how can you possibly call it science fiction? You know. So the idea, the idea of what the reader response might be or what your imaginary audience uh, might be is a factor then. Oh, it's a huge factor for me. I mean, not in a negative defining kind of a way. I don't see it as a a critical thing, but I really feel an anthologist has an obligation to both the book and to the reader to be honest about the book that you're doing, that the contents have to tie up to the editorial, have to tie up to the title, have to tie up to the package, all that kind of thing. And so, I mean, you can't just give someone a book called The New Space Opera and not make some attempt at scaling the whole idea of what it might be. Um, I feel probably less obligation when it comes to Eclipse, even though, because that's deliberately vague, you know, but mm. in other instances, yeah, I'm sitting, there, I'm going, okay, if I were, if I were the reader of this book, if I, if I bought it, brought it home, would I sit there and go, what the heck is that doing in there? Which is a fine response. But if I couldn't answer that question, then I'd be annoyed. I'd be sitting there going, that shouldn't be there as opposed to what the heck is that doing there? Oh, hang on. When I think about it, I can see what the editor was thinking. You know, so you want the yeah. editor to be a little bit transgressive, a little bit pushing the edges of what they're doing, but also firmly aware of what, what it is they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's hugely on my mind. I think there are two things that are uh, involved here. One is the question, is it fantastic or not? I mean, mm. that's, that's, that's a kind of general question, which comes up again and again. And, and, and I've, I've made the argument a number of times in, in various reviews. That sure. It really comes down to what will a reader of the fantastic make of the story, sure. whether whether it materially crosses the line of the fantastic or not. Uh, taking you off the hook for a minute, I know one of the issues that faced uh, Peter Straub in editing that famous Conjunctions 39 issue several years ago was he got an absolutely gorgeous story from John Crowley Yes, uh, called the, uh, the, um, the Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines. And Crowley himself, and he and I have talked about this, and he and Charles and I have talked about this, and he and Peter have, is Crowley said, I'm really sorry, but there's no fantasy in this story. And that didn't bother Peter at all. It bothered John in some way because he was concerned about the uh, the reader reaction of what they thought was a collection of fantasy and science fiction and maybe some horror stories. 
Um, and Peter had two reactions to that. One was, it's, it's such a beautiful story, you can't not you know, accept it. And the second thing is, it's a story which somehow in its language, its affect, mm. its, its, its imaginary world, uh, feels enough like a fantasy that a lot of readers, especially Crowley readers, aren't going to say a word about, well, wait a minute, there's, there's no demons in it, there's no ghosts, there's the, the, the most fantastic thing in it probably is there's a library that seems unusually complete for a small town library. Mm. Um, but and, and as far as I know, nobody complained about that. No. Um, and uh, the, the second, so that's the first issue is whether it's fantastic at all. When you're doing Eclipse, the only thing that I think the readers are expecting is that it's something that will satisfy the expectations of a reader who likes to read the fantastic. That, that's mostly pretty, true. That's mostly it's true. It's a pretty vague term. It is. Uh, I mean, I will say, I mean, I, I got fronted over our flagship story, the Karen J. Fowler. Mm. Uh, the moment I hit world fantasy that year i i had in fact ellen clay just our friend coming what the, it's a great story what's it doing in your book it's not science fiction yeah. it's not fantasy and ironically because ellen has done stories like that herself as, mm -hmm. she, as she well knows yes um so that's that that's that's a that's a more generic problem and in, in, in eclipse by and large i don't think i don't I, I know you're concerned about the balance but i don't think a lot of readers were worried about we have to have x number of science fiction yeah. x number of horror x number as a matter of fact um uh in terms of assigning a genre to a story, some of the most interesting stories being written today are the ones that make you wonder, where should I assign this? Where should I put yeah. it? Um, there wow. are Jonathan Carroll novels that have quantum physics in them, uh, but ghosts in the same thing. Actually, in the new Eclipse, uh, which I just read, uh -huh. um, which is coming out, oh, what, in a month or so? Yeah. Uh, it's a Caitlin Kernan story, which I thought was fascinating for mm -hmm. this very reason. Mm -hmm. uh, in one sense, it's a horror story. Yep. In one sense, it's a domestic relations story. I mean, if I can... Yep. I'm not giving too much away to say it's about a woman whose whose, whose girlfriend has gotten a, a a small wound, which turns into what amounts to a black hole. Yeah. And there are elements in it that look a lot like science fiction. There are elements mm -hmm. in it that are pure Lovecraftian horror. There are elements in it that are completely mainstream. Uh, what's happening to our relationship? So you you know you, you could read that story in one venue and think, gee, what a nice surrealistic Kafkaesque metaphor this is for a mm -hmm. troubled relationship. You could sure. read it. As a kind of postmodern uh, dark hole, this woman is being consumed by some kind of a singularity. Yeah. You can read it as flat-out horror. Yeah. Um, and I don't think anybody reading that story in a uh, uh, a book like Eclipse would worry about it. It's, no, it's I a, don't. Think, a, I wouldn't expect it. Sorry, story. I think if somebody saw that listed in the best science fiction stories, they might think, "Wait a minute, there's only a couple of things in there that sort of invite a science fictional reading." Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Um, context is all. I mean, in many ways, some of these stories become, I don't know if it's the right sort of, uh, they're, like, they're like genre lens filters, you know, like you hold, you know, depending what you hold it up against, is, you know, that's the genre you see. If you hold um, that story or if you hold the Fowler story or whatever up against science fiction, you can see how it could look science fictional. If you see it, hold it up against fantasy, or you can you can see other interpretations. They're very flexible uh, stories that really depend on their, their 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 genre is contextual rather than implicit. It's very funny you should mention that because another thing that came up on this panel discussion yeah uh, was 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 how a how a writer treats genre. There are writers, there have historically been writers that say, okay, this has got to be a science fiction story. Yeah. My argument, which I'd made in print, actually. Uh, Jim was kind enough to re 
refer to the essay, he'd read part of this book, Evaporating Genres. And I made the argument in there that these are a lot of writers who see um, genre not as a box that you have to write inside of, but that is a kind of toolkit that you take things out of as you need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I always thought that was kind of a cool metaphor. Nalo came up with a better one, which is exactly the one you just came up with. She said she doesn't, she said she appreciated the idea of genre as a toolbox. But as a writer, when she's writing a story, she sees it as a set of filters or lenses. Mm -hmm. And she, she comes to a problem in the story and she kind of picks up a, you know, the red filter is horror, the green filter is, she, she'll look at the story through that, through that filter and, Sometimes a different filter will solve a problem in the story than the previous filter had. Mm -hmm. So, and and it, the minute she said that, I was thinking of her first novel, *Brown Girl in the Ring*. Yeah. Where, where there are parts of it where it turns into a flat-out horror story, parts of it where she's using dystopian stuff, parts of it where it's science fiction, yes. parts, parts of it where it's post-colonial, you know, uh, Caribbean exiles in Toronto kind of thing. And that strikes me as it struck me at the time as being a very useful metaphor for probably the way a lot of writers work. Mm. Uh, I think so. I think and it is. I think it's also a useful metaphor for the way a lot of us read different stories. Yes. Well, I mean, the other thing, I mean, I always wonder a little bit when we have these these discussions, right, about how much readers think about this stuff when they're reading. You know? I, well, I mean, this is a puzzle that I always come across because when you're writing reviews, you're wondering who are the readers and what are they thinking? And you don't know. You have no yeah, way of knowing yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and by the way, we get as you know, reviewers these days get very little feedback mm. uh, unless you put something online with a long list of comments. Um, and I think that you can pretty much assume that the analog reader has one filter. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That may be unfair, but I, all of us on the panel agreed with that. Well, um, at least in, in, in their defense, let's say that analog itself is so heavily contextualized that there's no other filter you're likely to apply. Um. Well, and, and that, to some extent, is why, of all the magazines out there, as, as much as Analog gets passed over for awards and year's best anthologies and that sort of thing, of all the magazines out there, it's the one which is most consistent in satisfying its readers' expectations. Absolutely. I'm sure it is. And I don't think anybody can flaw uh, Stan Schmidt or no. going back before him to, for, for doing that. That's, And it's actually very successful. Yes. Um, when you get into almost any other magazine, the question is, some of these readers uh, are going to see this as a horror story. Some are going to see it as a character story. And you can't, you can't, all you can do is acknowledge that there are different ways of reading the story. Yeah. And I personally find it very exciting when a story permits multiple filters. Yeah. Uh, where it becomes one thing you look at one way. Um, we came up with, for example, uh, the, the other issue that came up, uh, which I thought was very interesting on the panel, uh, involved Ted Chang stories. Yeah. Which also permit, you look at the merchant on the alchemist's gate, and there's, yep. well, look at the yep. Tower of Babylon. Uh, and Ted Head, by the way, uh, who was uh, very uh, funny on the panel uh, in, in, in a way which is not fair to, it's not fair to say it's uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic of him. He was very forward about this sort of thing, that we were talking about interstitial fiction. He brought up the term interstitial fiction, and he announced, he said, I want to announce to the room, I am completely stitial. <laughs> I am a science fiction writer, period, and that's all he thinks about. Uh huh. <laughs> it's, not, it's not all he thinks about because, and and we were talking about how, in some extent, his science fiction does return to science fiction almost in the way you would use the term before it became a, a genre category: fiction about yeah. how science works. Yes. 
So if he sets a story in an alchemical universe like um, 72 Letters, sure. he shows how science works within that framework. Yes. He shows how he creates his own completely imaginary cosmology in um, um, the uh, exhalation story. And, but within that, the scientific method is pure. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's perfect. So, so in a sense, he's writing fiction about how science works, no matter what the setting is. Yeah. Um, which prompted another uh, provocative idea. The reason I keep coming back to this panel, it really is one of the I wish we had better panels of it, Gary. been on recent years. Um, at some point, and I think it was John Kessel, yep. who characterized Ted's stories as stories that we might at one time have thought of as proto-science fiction stories. Mm -hmm. Stories that might have been written in 1898 that people would later look back and say, oh, see, this person was anticipating what science fiction was going to do. Yeah. And... Um, Actually, Ted was kind of appalled by that. <laughs> well, I think Ted, in many ways, and I'm completely putting words in his mouth because we've not had this discussion, mm -hmm. would see himself as being the post-Egan generation of hard SF writer in many ways. I think he does. I th he's, he's, a, he's, he's a hard SF writer in the sense that he writes about scientific procedures and methodologies rather than science fictional settings. Mm. Uh, he can do a science fictional setting if he wants to. Yeah. But the question that sort of underlied underlay that question was could he could he think of himself as a proto-science fiction writer uh, yeah. and, and his response was exactly what you think it might be he said he could not have written anything he's written without a hundred years of science fiction history before him that he had absorbed integrated this he was he was writing out of that tradition yeah. rather than into it and i think that's an important distinction because uh, every once in a while you see a mainstream writer trying to write science fiction and sometimes they do it to greater or lesser Extends. But they're trying to write into the genre. They're trying yeah. to get into it. They may or may not have read very much of it. Ted sees himself as one of those writers. Kelly Link sees herself as one of these writers. Yeah. Who grew up reading science fiction and fantasy, who know the, 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 the tropes, the standards yeah. of the genres, and that's where they come from. Whatever yeah. their fiction is, that's what they come out of. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, the but that, that led me to the question of, are there stories being published today that could have been published a hundred years ago before there was, or, or even, uh, well, yeah, I'll say a hundred years ago, before there was uh, Gernsback, before there was a, a, a pulp genre, before there was, uh, maybe even before there was H.G. Wells. I don't know. Is, 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 is there proto-science fiction being written today? The glib answer that occurs to me is only by people who aren't in the science fiction field. Um... And well, even then, I'm not sure that's true. Actually, no. I, yeah. Yeah, my feeling is, you know, to be serious about it rather than glib, no. And it's because I don't think it's possible to change your mindset sufficiently that you're not already living in a world surrounded by this stuff. Mm -hmm. Everybody who writes anything vaguely science fictional, whether they be Mar Margaret Atwood or um, Jonathan Lethem or whether they be um, somebody writing a novella for Analog, has a hundred years of science fiction sitting there. They have all that knowledge, all that awareness. They have 50 years of science fiction media being thrown at them. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's impossible to, so I don't think it's possible to remove that filter when you, when you start writing a story. So everybody has some degree of science fictional awareness, at least in first world countries, you know, I mean, I guess if you were living somewhere in Africa or you know, somewhere where, um, Western culture hasn't completely overwhelmed everything. 
then you might be able to. But yeah, I don't know. I'd be yeah. surprised. Yeah, even there, it's, it's very difficult to find people like that. I mean, uh, one of the people I was talking to this this weekend was Karen Lord, who is mm-hmm. absolutely delightful. Yeah. Grew up in Barbados, and yet she grew up reading Heinlein and Bradbury. So yeah. she comes from the same kind of background. There's a film which we've talked about before, which Nadia Okorafor showed at, here in Chicago once. It hasn't been shown much, called Pumsy, yeah. the first Kenyan science fiction film. Immediately, you start watching this film by, uh, I'm trying to, I think, Waniri, I can't remember her name, Kahira. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know that she's seen uh, THX 1138. Sure, you know sure. that she knows. Her, so I don't know if there's any place in the world that's immune from those science fiction influences these days. Yeah. But the, the reason I think the idea of proto-science fiction is interesting, and a lot of it is still in print. You can still read the, uh, not only the, um, not only Wells and Verne, but you know, the, uh, things like Garrett P. Service and Edison's mm-hmm, Conquest mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're out there in academic editions. Yeah. When you look at steampunk, which in a way pretends to do that, it doesn't. No. Uh, steampunk is, 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 is writing 19th century science fiction from a 21st century perspective. And I think yeah, that's very yeah. clear in most of it that you read. Yes, I think that's true. I'm so just trying to I'm, have... I'm reaching for a name. There's somebody, a book that occurs to me. I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, I forgot hmm. blank. It wasn't Voyage to Arcturus. It was, um, oh gosh. Pynchon, Gravity's Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Does that have an element of that to it? I don't think so. It's funny. China and I were talking about that at dinner the other night. We were talking about the the, the whole issue of the, the whole issue behind the Castle Kelly anthology, um, the Secret History of Science Fiction, yeah, yeah. was that had, had Gravity's Rainbow won the Nebula in yeah. 1973 or whatever, um, that that would have changed the history of science fiction. Their their argument actually became no, it wouldn't because that history changed anyway. Mm-hmm. The point that China was making which is a very good point, is if you look at Against the Day, which is Pynchon's most recent novel, it's far more science fictional, pure steampunk. It's almost steampunk back to first principles. Yeah. And yet the more you read through it, the more you realize, wait a minute, this guy knows Moorcock, and this guy knows a bit of Libra. So even though we know very little about Pynchon's reading, we you can pretty much tell from Against the Day, much more so than from Gravity's Rainbow, that yeah, he grew up, whether he grew up reading science fiction or not, he's read a lot of it. Yes. Yeah. So he's he's not somebody who's in, who's arriving from outside. If you go back to 1920 with *A Voyage to Arcturus* itself, yeah, I think you can pretty safely say that David Lindsay had never read much in the way of science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. But he had read earlier fantasies. He had read Victorian fantasies. He mm-hmm, read mm-hmm. George MacDonald and others. Um, so is it possible to write an innocent science fiction book today? Uh, you're right. Maybe some mainstream writers have done that. But even the mainstream writers that you think are coming from outside the genre. Yeah. Turn out to be a lot more familiar with it um, <laughs> yes. than you might think. Um, yes. Doris Lessing being one example. Mm-hmm. And again, this is something that China and I were uh, talking about. Oh, yeah, he, he, he had come across, I guess he'd either seen her or met her at some point. And she'd said the same thing to me, to him, that she said to me years ago. I used to visit her in London. I know that sounds like name dropping, but she was a guest at Ick for one time. And, and the first thing I, the first thing Doris Lessing said to me when I went to her house for a party, which was full of way more important people than I was, was she knew I knew about science fiction. And she said, why don't all science fiction writers write like Greg Bear? <laughs> I, Doris Lessing is a Greg Bear fan? I mean, come on. Did you ever tell Greg that? I told Greg that. I told Greg that about a, about a year later. And he said, get her to say it in print for heaven's sake. <laughs> And, but uh, that didn't happen for years. And then after she won the Nobel Prize, in one of the interviews, she said, I think everybody should read Greg Bear. And now he has that on his books and it's so forth and so on. 
The point is that when she was writing the Canopus and Argo series, or even if you go back before that, yeah, when yeah. you look novels like uh, Memoirs of a Survivor or The Fifth Child, she had read Stapleton, she had read Arthur Clarke, she knew her way around the field. Uh, uh, and, and, and she, as she said to me once, she was, uh, we in this field complain that Doris Lessing always gets a, gets a pass. Uh, she gets reviewed in the New York Times or mm-hmm. The Guardian or The London Times. Uh, and when she's writing science fiction, the review will always say, this isn't really science fiction, this is spiritual fiction, this is visionary fiction. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we complain about that because she's being treated like she's from uptown. She complained about it, too. She said, I, th- I thought I was writing science fiction. <laughs> I was trying to write science fiction. I, I, I knew Clark and Stapleton. I knew Greg Bear. I, I may not have been writing very good science fiction, but I, I certainly wasn't writing what they're telling me I was writing. <laughs> so in other words, again, it's all about the reader in the sense that they're sitting there going, I like this. I'm uncomfortable calling it science fiction. So ergo, I will do something. I'll call it something else just to make sure it's- that it's okay for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and Doris Doris was guest of honor at a, at a Worldcon once. I mean, she, mm-hmm. she completely embraced. She's not at all a snob about it. Uh, another friend of mine, I shouldn't, I, I know this sounds like name dropping, but these are people I met before I read them, so I count them that way. But there's a, the, the leading Cuban science fiction writer for the last 20 years probably <laughs> has been a woman named Diana Chaviano. Yep. Uh, very little of her science fiction has been translated into English. Uh, she speaks perfect English. She lives in Miami, but she doesn't translate her own novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her first novel was translated called The Island of Eternal Love, a beautiful historical fantasia about the history of Cuba. Yeah. And it, it, it's clearly a fantasy novel. There's no yeah. doubt in my mind, there was no doubt. In, um, so it, it's, it's published by Riverhead Books, a very prestigious imprint. Uh, it's a beautiful edition, and it's purely marketed as magic realism. Yeah. And I got, uh, I, I talked to Diane and, and afterwards, and she said, I, I was writing a fantasy novel, and they're telling me now it's magical realism. Because <laughs> why? Because I'm a Latin American writer, and that's... <laughs> That's what they want you to be. <laughs> so, so, so her theory was that if she'd come from sort of Cupertino and her name was Dana Smith, she would have written a fantasy novel. Exactly. Right. And it would have been published by Tor and it wouldn't have been distributed in, in, in literary genres. Now, the other side of that coin yeah. are people who know a little bit about science fiction. I'm talking about mainstream writers into science fiction. Who know a little bit about science fiction, but haven't internalized it and it becomes a kind of surface choreographical yeah. move. Yeah. Um, John Updike wrote a science fiction novel, which is just awful mm-hmm. to the ends of time. And he'd read some science fiction. Uh, he'd written a famous review in The New Yorker of David Hartwell's World Treasury of Science Fiction, mm-hmm. in which you could see he was trying to engage with the genre. But when he writes a novel, you can figure out he'd only figured out the surface metaphors. Yeah. And the other novelist who strikes me is in the same vein, uh, although he gets, a, I, th- I think he gets a pass from a lot of readers because of who he is, is the mystery novelist Walter Mosley. Yeah. who writes terrific mystery novels. The Easy Rollins mysteries cover the whole history of, uh, partly the history of race relations in the United States from the 40s through the 70s, um, and I love them. He yeah. wrote a couple of science fiction novels which are really wobbly. You know, they're, they're not terribly well thought through. There's some good stories in them, but every idea is used for yeah. its um, yeah. um, forensic value, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I, I don't subscribe to the, to the belief that uh, mainstream writers can't do science fiction, yeah. uh, because I, I think they can. Yeah. I just don't think that Paul Theroux can. I don't think that Michael <laughs> <Fox> can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sounds like Ikfa was really energizing. It really is. One of the things that's odd about that mix of people, as we talked about during last week's podcast, 
is that it is a large community of writers and editors. Um, a few publishers, Tom Doherty was there this year, he got an award from us, and a community of academics who maybe or may not be aware of what's going on currently in the field. I don't blame academics for this. I am one. But by and large, if you, if you, if you don't have a gig in the field of writing reviews, there's no particular reason to keep up with the stuff year to year. That's yeah, not what yeah, you're yeah. teaching in your classroom. Yeah. Uh, but what, what's not there is this uh, contingent of idol worshippers, uh, by which I don't mean most fans, but there are yeah, some yeah. fans who interrupt that. Uh, sure. In the sense that when you're sit, sit, uh, sitting out around the pool, you're talking to very interesting people. It's a good mix of people. Uh, a good example of uh, maybe maybe the iconic uh, ICFA member, he would kill me for saying this, would be Andy Duncan. Okay. Um, Andy's wife, Sydney, is on the board. And she helps uh, put, she actually puts together the program. Yeah. Uh, she and Andy both teach at Frostburg State College in Virginia. I, I have to say this very carefully because once I introduced him and I started to say Frostbite Falls, Minnesota, which is where <laughs> Rocky and Bullwinkle live. Um, but it's, it sounds like that. Um, Andy writes wonderful stories. You get to hear stories. Actually, the story that's in uh, Eclipse 4, I first heard it at ICFA. Yeah, it's slow, yeah. slower than a bullet. Is it yeah. slower than a bullet? Is that what it's called? Yeah, slow as a bullet. Okay. Yeah. Slow as a bullet, yeah. And yet, at the same time, he is an academic, a scholar, uh, uh, who had written uh, one of the most incisive essays about Tom Godwin's The Cold Equations, as a matter of fact. It was in the New York Review of Science Fiction. Yeah. Uh, you get uh, writers, Terry Bisson was one of the guests of honor this year, who is an extraordinarily literate and thoughtful and, 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 and funny guy. And he's, he's a little bit like Andy also. And, that you know, you, you first think you're looking at this southern good old boy, and then you realize this guy's read way more than I have and thought mm -hmm. about it better. Um, so, so that's the kind of thing that goes on there. There's a sense that a lot of writers feel released to talk about their, their inner literary person, that they sometimes don't talk about in, in yeah. fan conventions or in yeah. science fiction conventions. And the academics um, find that writers actually want to talk about this stuff. You know, they're yeah. not all self-promotional hacks. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, no, they're not. They really aren't. But I should also say that I, I've just made the connection that you, that you haven't told us about maybe one of the reasons you're having dinner with Mr. Mievel. Is that because he's the guest of honor at next year's ICFA, Gary? He will be. Um, he's and he's looking forward to. It. He's been at, at an ICFA before. Uh, China, actually, now that I mention it, China is another perfect example of the kind of person that crosses all the worlds in ICFA. Yeah. Uh, he writes in now a wide variety of, 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 of genres. I mean, yes. Embassy Town is science fiction. There's Croc and that sort of thing. He's got a doctorate. He's a he, he's a history. He's, he's a kind of a Marxist historian slash economist. Um, he knows his way around the field, and he loves to talk about this sort of thing. Mm. And but the, the kind of conference that I'm attracted to are the ones, uh, ReaderCon, as you know, is the other one, where people really, really, really want to find other people that they can talk to about this stuff. Yes. And, and, and not spend the entire con playing a role or signing autographs yes. or, uh, or hero worshipping. Uh, so, yeah, yes. China is, is going to be an excellent uh, guest for next I'm year. Sure China is one of these rare... He's one of these rare contemporary writers, uh, the fact that he was recognized by the people at our next yeah, 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 yeah. table at dinner, that crosses the line between uh, pure adulating fans and sort of stiff, formal scholars. Everybody knows, just like everybody knows who yeah. Neil Gaiman is. And yeah. the, other person, I, the other person I should mention is everybody knows who Peter Straub is. Sure, sure. And 
he's very, very comfortable at ICFA because of that. Yeah. I, I have to say, just as a, an, a viewer's kind of thing, I was just thinking, this, this perhaps goes to why I find it profoundly uncomfortable to ask people to sign their books. Just because it's bringing something else into the relationship that kind of doesn't belong. You meet them in this context, you engage with them as people with common interests and everything, and then to bring this other thing in just doesn't fit. It really kind of jars. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel exactly the same way. And it crossed my mind after dinner, China came back here and we chatted for a while. And I thought, I, I had this thought, well, maybe I should get him to do a few minutes of podcast stuff. And I thought, no. No, no, no. That's it's fair just, enough. Just the thing. I had John Crowley here once and it, the, the only time I've ever done this, I, I, I don't have, I'm not, I'm not the Clutes in London. I don't have a lot of people visiting here in Chicago. Yeah. But occasionally it happens. One time, the only time I ever did that at my apartment was Crowley was here and I had a copy of uh, Antiquities, which is sure. a gorgeously produced little book. And I asked him to sign it mostly because it was such a gorgeous book anyway. Mm -hmm. And I felt really awkward yeah. because he's here as a friend. He's here because we're hanging out. We were doing some panels together and that sort of thing. You just don't want to shift yes. your relationship to somebody to do that. No. As a, as a result of which I have a horrible, weak, bad collection of autographed books because I can never bring anybody to <laughs> bring myself to ask anybody to autograph them. Yeah. Well, what I find is it becomes this awkward little thing I tack on the end of the experience. It's like uh, Marianne and I had lunch with Margot Lanigan a month ago, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. And it was terrific. Margot's great fun, and she's really smart, clever, engaging company and all that kind of thing. And we had a great time. And then at the end of it, it was kind of like, oh, I have my copy of Yellow Cake here. Um, I'll ask her to sign it for me. And she was really mm -hmm. happy to do it. It wasn't a problem. But I just really felt... It was awkward and out of place and almost inappropriate. Now, I know Charles would say it's never inappropriate to ask someone to, to sign their book. They always like to. They're happy to. It's an ego thing. But it just feels like it clashes. Charles had a personality that you and I don't have. Charles never uh -huh. asked anybody to sign a book. He told them to <laughs> sign books. He ordered them to sign books. Yes, well, I do, do seem to recall one or two people who would be almost sentenced to some time in the basement, you know, as the, you know, you've come out to my house, you've had dinner, we've talked, whatever else. Now as the punishment for having written so many books, you have yeah. to sit down in the library and sign them all. You know, he would get away with it. I don't know anybody else who could quite get away with it. Um, I, I mean, I, I what, my, one of my aspirations, which is too late to get to now is to get to the point, uh, where Charles was by the end of his, by the last 10 years of his life or where, where John Clute is now, where, People just give you signed books. I mean, they just sign you. <laughs> Where can I sign? Uh, that's uh, that's kind of a, a neat thing to do. But I keep thinking of the number of um, books that I never had. I mean, I've got signed books by people who have been longtime friends like Joe Haldeman and Brian Aldis. Sure, sure. But the number of books I don't have signed by them far outnumbers that because I just didn't want to do it for the reason yeah. you're describing. Well, I considered well, me... with Margot doing the, the, the Charles thing, which would mean to take every Margot Lennigan book I have. And I just went, yeah, no, I can't do that. Yeah. Oh, I, I admire people who can do that. Uh, one of the people who was at, one, one of the most astonishing things I've seen in recent years um, uh, was, was Bernie Goodman, who was, was, was associated with Tachyon Publishing, mm -hmm. uh, one of their editors, had found a bound uh, copy of, uh, I think, the old Greg Press reprints of the first, I don't know, the first five years of Locust or something, where they were uh -huh. reprinted in the hardcover. He found it in a used bookstore. And apparently the guy who had owned it had known Charles, and they had gone around and collected an astonishing number of signatures. 
Alfred Bester, you know, uh, every, every, uh, uh, obviously Harlan Ellison, uh, uh, yeah. um, Joanna Russ. It had dozens of signatures in the front of it. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is, it, it was, it was hard to think of a writer of the 50s or 60s that was still active that, that hadn't signed this, literally, yeah. literally yeah. dozens and dozens. And what Bernie was doing, uh, which he can do, he's got the personality to do it. He was going around getting everybody, every writer, everybody with any kind of a reputation at ICFA to sign it in the back. So now he's got uh, a book, of, of, a huge bound volume of locusts with, I would say, 100, 150 signatures of people from the 50s and 60s and then people now from the mm-hmm. 2010s uh, signing the book. And I, I admire Bernie for being able to do that because once you look at the thing, you think it's an honor to put your signature in there next to Alfie Bester's or Robert Heinlein's or Asimov's. I guess it is. I mean, part of me goes, I mean, I, I couldn't help but when you were sort of saying that, I was thinking, to what end? I mean, I don't, I don't crave that object. Do you know what I mean? Well, okay, uh, this is probably one of the reasons we get along as well as we do. <laughs> I, I almost feel guilty sometimes that I've never been a collector. Uh-huh. I, 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 not since I was a kid. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't really get a lot of joy from just accumulating lots and lots of books so I can say I yeah. have all the... Uh, I, I, a lot of my good friends, a lot of people I respect enormously do that. But I've never thought that you know, I have to have this book signed because it's going to increase its value or because it's sure. going to go somewhere on the collector's market. Uh, I like to have books signed. I mean, I've done it uh, when I meet people that I didn't think I was ever going to meet again. Mm-hmm. I had Bernard Malibu sign a novel. I had When wow. I, was, I had Joseph Heller taught a class, I had Joseph Heller sign a novel. But that's the thing. You have one shot at it, you figure. Yep. But in the science fiction field, it's almost like when you make a lot of friends in the field, you don't want to sort of suddenly revert to, I, I want you to increase the value of my book for me. Yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, that to some degree, they, they know it. They know when the collector's people come, come around and all that kind of stuff. That that's exactly what it's about. If you sign this, I actually, you know, I actually had an author warn me against having them sign a book in a particular way because it might reduce the value of the book. How's that? I've been told that too. Don't have them personalize the signature because unless yeah. you turn out to be a celebrity yourself, the value of it goes down. Well, I, I have and a copy of the, uh, the Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, the first edition. And mm-hmm. they'd never produced many hardcovers, so they're reasonably valuable. And she said she said to me, you don't want me to personalize this to you? I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course. She said, it'll reduce the value. I'm going, I'm never going to sell it. So it doesn't really yeah. matter, does it? Uh, that's, what, that, that's what bothers me a lot. When somebody um, gives you a book to sign and they ask you not to personalize it, that tells you something right there. Yes, but then as it turns out, if a book, if it turns out that years later, both people uh, become substantial reputations, one of the one of the classic missing books in the world uh, of, among collectors is uh, a first edition of Stranger in a Strange Land, which was dedicated to Philip Jose Farmer. And it was, and I saw it once. So I, was, I was at Phil's house and it was inscribed to Philip Jose Farmer from Robert Heinlein. First edition, yeah. Children, I forgot who published it. And of course... The fact that it was inscribed to Philip Jose Farmer increased its value rather than of course. decreased. But you can't count on that happening. And the book subsequently got stolen from Phil's house. And yeah. Well, I, no I think I had, you know, that's, that sucks. Well, I think I told you that I saw probably the, the only copy of Contact by Carl Sagan that I could possibly imagine wanting. Mm-hmm. There's a sitting in the basement at Locus. I shouldn't. <laughs> sorry, sitting somewhere strangely in the world, is mm-hmm. a first edition of Contact inscribed at length. There's about a page long inscription from Sagan to Robert Heinlein. 
about how wow. he was his major his major uh, inspiration and how it was fantastic and he loved his work and this was da 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 and this whole big big long inscription to him. So you know, and you'd have to figure that a long inscription from uh, from Sagan to Heinlein, and because it's in Charles's house, countersigned by Heinlein, uh, right. would make the whole thing far more valuable to collectors. I mean, I would imagine a right. copy of a first edition of June signed by Frank Herbert to Sterling Lanier would be more valuable. Right, and and, and not only that would be of some historical value as well, because you, you know, once you look at, uh, let's say somebody is going to do scholarship on, on on Carl Sagan's fiction, which is not really very likely to happen, <laughs> but were it to, the, the, yeah. the, 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 that would be direct documentary evidence of, of Sagan being influenced by Heinlein in that novel, which is, you know, from literary history point of view, a significant bit of datum. Well, j- just like the uh, inscription I saw in a copy of Flow My Tears, the policeman said, a first edition sitting in Charles's collection signed uh, by Dick to Heinlein saying what an influence he was on him. Exactly. Uh, we should explain that Charles ha- Charles's collection includes Heinlein's collection. A chunk of it, yeah. Uh, so, so, so there's a lot of that stuff there, which is absolutely fascinating, and I don't know if anybody has gone across it and gone through it in a systematic way. Yeah, I, I will say but the other thing. Sorry, yeah. Uh, parenthetically, uh, the, speaking of collectible things, and I don't know how much I should go there, but it's not necessarily private knowledge, but. Uh, the R.A. Lafferty collection of unpublished stories and manuscripts at the University of Tulsa. Mm-hmm. I ran into a young scholar named Andrew Ferguson who's read all that stuff. Yeah. So we now know that w- what's there, and some of it some of it has handwritten notes in it. Some of it has mm-hmm. notes from Damon Knight. There's a lot of stuff that comes out from inscriptions and letters that you find out. One of the mm-hmm. things is that, and Andrew, if he listens to us, because Andrew, you said you were going to start listening to the podcast, so we're counting on you that um, the Lafferty stories that were published and edited by Damon Knight, he's perfectly happy with. Yeah. number of the ones that were published in fantasy and science fiction were edited in ways that Lafferty didn't like. Okay. So there are probably pure, more like director's cuts out there of these things. And, mm-hmm. and that, that's the kind of thing that happens when you look at manuscripts. It's just as a marginally thing, marginally related to our question of autographs. Sure, sure. But... Uh, do you ever look at the value of, well, hear about the value of a book and have a slight pang if you have it or if you don't have it? Uh, I don't worry about not having it because I don't care about collecting it. I have the Arkham House first edition, for example, of the William Hope Hodgson novels, mm-hmm. uh, House on the Borderland and other novels, which turns out now to be cor- corrupted text of the Nightland and so forth. But I, the, the uh, uh, ABE price on several hundred of several thousand dollars, I have a first edition of David Lindsay's uh, third novel, Devil's Tour, mm-hmm. which is, which would be enormously valuable if anybody wanted it. Uh, <laughs> which means it's not enormously valuable at all, right? Well, there, there are only a couple of dozen copies of it known to exist anywhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, uh, so I'm kind of glad I've gotten. If I found out, I found out that were worth ten thousand dollars. I think that's really cool. Maybe if I need to, I can sell it. But, but how I don't. Yeah. I do have oh, I do have one August Derleth autographed uh, collection, mm-hmm. uh, but and that might be with something to Lovecraftians, I guess. Yeah. But by and large, no, I don't worry about the fact that oh my God, I could have had that signed by so and so before he or she died, and I didn't. For, for, um, forget died. What about something like the Wind Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi, going for fourteen hundred dollars in his first edition? 
know, that's the other thing that just absolutely strikes me as amazing. Is that the value of the book really has not m- that much to do with the rarity. Now, the first edition was not that large. No, it wasn't. It was, I've talked to Nightshade about it. But compared to the first edition of that David Lindsay novel, uh, the, 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 the piece of literary trivia about David Lindsay, he's here, was A Voyage to Arcturus in 1920. It sold something like 1,200 copies. And yeah. that was his bestseller for the rest of his career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this book sold like 600 copies. Most of them disappeared. So that, I think, is very, very rare. The fact that the book, which is a couple of years old, can read yeah. that. How much, how much do you suppose, a, well, I don't know, a first, an autographed first, first edition of, of one of Neil's early novels, like Neverwhere, do you think that's worth a lot? Probably. Well, I would think anything by Neil is worth a hell of a lot is true. Yeah, anything sort of, well, it's hard to know. I mean, I don't know that a game in signature is worth much because Neil is such a forthright and determined signer of everybody's books. He's out there signing and signing yeah. and signing. Um, so yeah, I don't know what, I mean, actually oddly, I, I, you would have heard the clicks of the keyboard. So I went to ABE and I fired in Neil Gaiman. Guess what uh-huh. the most valuable book of Neil's is? I have no idea. Go on, go on, go on. I will bet you money. American Gods. Duran Duran, the first five years of the, uh, four years of the Fab Five. Wow. 1500 bucks. <laughs> is the Duran Duran, so... So that's it, yeah. He wrote a Duran Duran uh, music book. That was his first book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he won't let it be reprinted um, or anything else like that. As long as you're there, there, check out what Ghastly Beyond Belief. um, I don't know if it shows up. I'm just having a quick rundown because, I mean, like, you, to, to really get an idea of whether a book's worth a lot of money, you don't want the signed limited editions and slip cases and all that. You want to know, like, a standard copy. You know, like, if you bought, okay, I bought a copy of Good Omens by Gaiman and Pratchett when it first came out. I have it sitting in my front room, and I have it signed by, pretty sure I got Terry to sign it when, I, when he was out here once, and signed by Neil, I think. So that's $1,000. And that's his most valuable straight book. And I think it's because he came in at the high end. Like when he started, by the time he started writing novels, he was very popular, right? Right. So they started off with big print runs. You know, Neil didn't have lots of small print run books to start his career off as a novelist. Right. Um, so they're they're fairly readily available, and that keeps the price up or down. I mean, sorry, down. Uh, so he. Oh, well, I mean, it's it's one of the things I'm always I always have friends coming up saying, "Is this book?" worth a lot because it's 100 years old and I have to explain to them that demand rather than rarity is really what well what, what guides the price of books that's the other thing about all this nonsense on ABE books right and you have to look at it as nonsense um, these are the prices people are asking not necessarily the prices they're getting that's true too you know it's like I have a signed first edition of Greg Be- Greg Egan's Quarantine now, not many people are going to have signed first editions of Greg Egan's Quarantine. No, there are not very many signed Greg Egan books at all, I would imagine. No, no there's not. And I asked a dealer once, if, uh, you know, sort of, how much would it be worth? And he said, oh, $1,500, $1,600 probably. And I went, oh, well, how much would you give me for it? Oh, three. Mm-hmm. And sort of going, huh. Now, it's more than the 25 bucks I paid for it or something. But even so. Still, I remember, you know, somebody telling, yeah? I remember somebody telling me once that Asimov... Uh, signed books after about 1950 or so aren't worth that much because he signed a lot of them. He was, yeah. you know, the most popular writer. He was everywhere. He was in New York, so you could go to. So uh, uh, it, it's probably maybe Pebble in the Sky. I have no idea, but 
but by the time you're getting to the the best sellers, the foundations, edge kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, then the foundation and empire, um, you're you're not talking about books that are terribly rare. No, uh, no, they're not. Well, I mean, look, they announced what the new Christopher Paolini book's going to be published later this year. Two and a half billion mm-hmm. copies of the hardcover first edition. It's never going to be worth much. I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. even if you look at J.K. Rowling, right, the first book is worth a fortune because they produced mm-hmm. no copies, really, five, six hundred copies or something. Um, but by the time you get to the seventh one, it's like they're 10 million first printings or something. So it's just, right, and and she signed probably thousands and thousands of them. Well, no, I don't think she ever signed very many. Oh, really? Not the impression I got, but still. I, I, my impression was that she signed less and less as she became more and yeah. more vulnerable to massive crowds, but I, I, yeah. I thought the first couple of them where she was... She, she may have, I, I don't know. But, but uh, uh, again, that's not the kind of thing that... I mean, I used to... Um, when I was a kid, there was a. Uh, I, used, I lived in a small town in Missouri. We'd drive into the big city, which was Kansas mm-hmm, City, mm-hmm. and we found a magazine that had tons of pulp magazines. I mean, amazing stories from the 30s and 40s, and they were selling them for like a dollar a piece back then. Um, and I bought them and I read them. And I, I, I later learned from pulp collectors you don't read these things, you put them in sleeveless <laughs> uh, aerobic uh, nitrogen lace yeah. jackets, preserve them forever, and keep the, keep the acid in the paper. And I, that's not why I bought them. I no, wanted to see no. what it was like to read a pulp magazine in its format. And it changes the experience of reading. It's important. Yeah. Uh, I, think, uh, I think Justine did some of the same thing when she was doing her Battle of the Sexes book. It just is trying to recreate the experience of reading one of these magazines in 1939. Yeah. Uh, and reading, reading stories in them which have never been anthologized. Yes. Uh, Blitzkrieg in the past. I mean, there's a wonderful story by, I forget the guy's name. Uh, about a Nazi panzer division somehow being transported back and having to fight dinosaurs. Um, it was a perfectly awful story, but that's what... Pe- people reading these magazines month to month weren't reading... They weren't just reading the classic Asimov and Heinlein and Van, Van Vogt stories. You know, they were reading these stories by writers that you've never heard of in a sense. It's true, it's true. And then all the trust ads in the back and you know, magic tricks and the stuff. You began to realize what the culture of those magazines were. Mm. And, uh, it's, uh, and as I say, later people said, you can't do that. You can't read these magazines. And I thought, okay, I'm not a, I'm not a collector. What's uh, the point of having them if you don't read them? Yeah. So anyway, you know what? But before we got started, I said I'd made some notes about things to talk about. And we haven't talked about any of them. And we're just about completely out of time. Because oh, we've, done our, we've done our hour or so, I think. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, maybe you can mention your notes as a preview for next week. Well, um, at some point I do want to talk about Science Fiction Signals' uh, recent uh, mind melt, where they asked the question about whether Robert Heinlein's work is still relevant to the field. That's something that's on my mind at the moment. Particularly, as I said to you, I discovered entirely as a result of that, that the 1st of June is the 50th anniversary of Stranger in a Strange Land, which surprised me a great deal. It makes me feel really old, because I can remember when it came out. (laughs) Barely. Barely. It's a childhood memory, but it's there. Also, it's been sort of an awards-crazy week. The Tiptree Awards were announced, which mm-hmm. was interesting. And uh, enormously interesting to me was that uh, Tansy from Galactic Suburbia has been asked to be a judge next year. Oh, so really? she, she, yeah, she will cool. be judging the Tiptrees. So please send all of your chocolate bribery to, to Tansy via her website, and I'm sure she will put you on the final shortlist if you give her enough chocolate and cake and goods, things like that. Because there seems uh, a real Tiptree also- baked goods link. We should also mention that Tansy and Alex and Elisa are nominated for a Ditmar. They are indeed. They are 
both our friends and our rivals. Because Gary, we are up for the best fa- was a best uh, fan publication in any medium. By the way, I, that's something I do want to mention. I like the way the Ditmars do that. I wish the Hugos would do that because it makes it very clear that yeah. podcast blogs, fanzines, print zines, all those things are eligible. And it's yes. uh, uh, it's 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 much more amb- ambiguous the way it's stated in. Well, the BSFA Awards, where it falls yes. into the nonfiction yes. category, or the Hugo Awards, where there's yes. fans in the nothing. And that's, yeah, I think, uh, there were about six uh, moments. My, propos- yeah. yeah. my proposal for the Ditmars is that they simply split it according to gender and give a, give a girl, girl's award and a boy's award. And that way we can, we in Galactic Suburbia can both have one. Well, we did, we did, I was in touch with Tansy this morning, and uh, mm-hmm. we did agree that the best result would be a tie. Which would be almost the best way I could. Uh, uh, sort it out because, in a way, these are companion podcasts. Yes, and uh, I don't. I really, really don't want to get into the idea that we're looking at male and female points of view because it turns out we all five or five of us agree on a lot of things. Mm. Oh yeah. But uh, but 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 there, there, there's there's such a parallel in the history and the kind of yes. etiology of, the, of these podcasts. I'd love to see a tie between us. Yes, it would be that would be terrific. I mean, I do note that it says a lot about what's happening here in Australia that. There are six nominees in the category, and five of them are podcasts, um, which suggests that, that there's a real move in podcasts down here. But Well, there's an argument uh, as to why podcasts in Australia are especially important, and it's the other side of the argument as to why the digital edition of Locus is important in Australia. Yeah. Podcasts give you an instant international audience. They do. They absolutely and do. So, so, so a lot of people in the States, and I'm sure in the U.K., are much more aware of uh, what's going on in Australian fandom because of because of you and because of uh, Tansy and Alex and Elisa than they would have been before. And had you guys been doing print zines, it would have been the same situation of figuring out, first of all, yeah. if you could afford to mail them yes. around the world, oh, yeah, yeah. and then people waiting weeks to see them. Yeah, But there's been a plethora of interrelated nominations because the Aurealis Awards came out two days ago, and then the uh, Ditmars came out today in the wee mm. small hours of the morning. And so, for example, Tansy is up for Best Fantasy Novel at the Aurealis Awards and Best Novel at the uh, Ditmars. Um, Elisa's anthology Sprawl is up for um, Best Collected Work onto the Ditmars, and she's up over at um, the Aurealis Awards under Best Anthology for the same uh, work. And in fact, we're actually up against each other because Godlike Machines and Wings of Fire are both up as well, which is which is Marianne's first, my wife Marianne's first. Oh yes, good nomination for anything, which is I'm really really just chuffed about. It's really great. So I mean, on one hand, it's like it's great to be nominated. It's a little bit difficult. The it's, you know you want your friends to do really well, all that kind of thing. And of course, the other thing about it is the Ditmars are presented, if not on the same day, and I think it may even be the same day, certainly the same weekend as the BSFA. Oh, really? Yes. Is it that soon? Yes. It's coming up. Wow. Are you going to be at the Ditmars? Yes, I should be at the Ditmars. Excellent. Can I expect accept on your behalf if we win? I I believe you should accept on my behalf. And, uh, and if uh, Galactic Suburbia wins, give them my absolutely unalloyed congratulations. I shall indeed. I, I would be delighted to do so. We, we will buy them a drink. Yes, we will. Uh, at least I'd one. love to get that. Yeah, we'll have to get that whole group to the States at some point. Yes, that'd be great. It would be, that would be yeah. fun. And of course, I mean, uh, for anybody who's listening to this podcast, as quickly as I can get it up, uh, the Hugo nominations close tomorrow evening, uh, 
U.S. time, I think. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that as well. I mean, I've done my nominations, but I uh, uh, didn't realize it was coming up that soon. So. Yep. And that means that, of course, the, the quiet little emails go out about two weeks after that. And we'll find out. Uh, well, I, uh, I don't know what we'll find out at that point. I mean, I think you've got a, you, you had a very good year last year, so I'd be surprised. Who knows? He, he says modestly. More to the point, I'm just, I just want anybody. My main thing when I've been talking about the Hugos this last few months is just to get people to just nominate. Nominate whatever you, whatever you think is worthy, but just nominate so that the, the broadest spectrum of voices possible is heard. So. Well, you can repeat. I will repeat for you the point you made in an earlier podcast that people who feel like they haven't read enough in the field or don't know enough mm. in the field, it's not an argument to not nominate. If no. there's something you're passionate about, then you have an absolute right to advocate it, even if you don't know what it's up against. Yes, I think so completely. <sighs> so let's okay. encourage all of our friends to make nominations uh, within the next 24 hours or mm -hmm. so. And on that happy note, Gary, I think we might call it a bust. I'm going to sort of head back to my sick bed once I've sort of managed my children and go lie down and feel mildly off color as I was yesterday. And hopefully by the time we podcast again, all will be well. I think you'll be well. And by that time, you will have received my column for this month. <laughs> this is okay. overdue, as you reminded me. Well, so farewell, one and all, and we'll see you next month or next week. See you next week. Absolutely. Okay. Bye. Bye.